This morning we read from Ephesians 6, 5-8. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. Morning. I'll try not to move too much. My mic's having some problems this morning. Today we're talking about work. So I don't normally dress in a coat and tie, but this is in honor of all of you who have to dress up to go to work or who have had to dress up to go to work. So that's, uh, that's in honor of you that I'm wearing this today. 2011, a movie came out called Horrible Bosses. Uh, and as you may have noticed, Right about now, Horrible Bosses 2 came out, so apparently it made pretty good money. I haven't seen it, but the premise is interesting. You know, three men who have horrible bosses, terrible, the worst kind, and so they decide they want to make a change, and they decide to kill their bosses. Well, things, of course, fall apart, and uh, it doesn't all happen as planned. It's comedy, but um, I'm not recommending the movie, okay? I'm not. It doesn't look that great. But many of us can identify with the premise. We've had difficult bosses, and we wish there was a way to make them go away. (laughs) You see, work is hard for all of us. It's actually designed that way by God. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, as he gives the curses, he said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will bear fruit. It will bring forth thorns and thistles. What he's saying is, by God's grace and his love, he made work frustrating, hard, and painful. So that we would be driven to Christ. So ever since, and work has been that way for both men and women. It's been difficult. It's been hard. So the big question for us then as believers today is, okay, if that's true, if work's hard, if it's difficult, sometimes we have difficult bosses, difficult work situations, what does it mean to really live out Christ at work? We're continuing our study through 1 Timothy, what it means to be a gospel-centered church, what for us to be gospel-centered Christians in this hostile, often hostile, very difficult world. What does it mean to live out your faith at work, to honor Christ on the job? Most of us spend a good portion of our time, of our life, at work. So it's important that we think through how to wrestle with this, what it means to be a gospel-centered people in a secular work environment. What makes this especially hard for us, I think, is our current pressure in our culture. You see, our current culture 
pressures us to keep our faith private. In America, you can believe in Christ. You can go to church. It's fine. That's your private life. But don't bring that into the public sphere. Don't make it impact your work environment, your work world. It's a book I've been reading called The Courage to be Protestant by David Wells, in which he analyzes some of this. So bear with me as I read some of his thinking in this. He says, in the United States, there's been this thought that the framers of the Constitution in separating church and state had intended to exclude all religious life from public life rather than thinking the other way around what the original framers of the Constitution thought, which is the Constitution is meant to limit the state's power to meddle in the life of the church. But that is where we stand today. People can believe whatever they want. They can ground it in God or the sacred. They can practice those beliefs in any way they choose, as long as they do it privately. How we order our life collectively is to be decided non-religiously. So because of that, this is what it's like for us at work. In our public world, we are mostly cogs in a machine, parts of a working order where accountability is in functional terms rather than those of personal ethics. God can be part of the picture in private, but he's not to be a player in the public square, in the corporation, or in how the workplace functions in general. Here, our relations are those of profit and loss. Here, accountability is less personal than it is business-oriented. This world offers no supporting structures, no plausibility for an understanding of God as the center of life from whom meaning and morality are derived. These become alien intruders into the public square where we live much of our lives. What this means for us then as believers is we struggle. We feel like we're in two worlds. We live in this world of our private faith, we come to church, we try to trust God in our families, we have private devotions, but in our secular jobs, in the secular world, we struggle with what it means to be a Christian. As he goes on to say, we live in both of these worlds, though rarely at the same time. In fact, we have had to adapt to this circumstance. We've had to become amphibious creatures. We've had to learn to swim in both worlds to live by the rules that each has, and that often means operating with different world views. We learn to adjust our worldview according to the world in which we inhabit. So we change our morals based on where we live, he says. This is how postmoderns have learned to survive in our contemporary world, be different people in two different spheres. But when the strategy of survival is carried over into our understanding of God, however, something catastrophic happens to our Christian faith. So what's he saying? He's saying the secular world has said, you cannot bring God here. Feel free to live with God privately, but don't bring God into the public sphere. This means that we live one way at home and one way at church. It means that one of the most difficult tasks we have as believers today is to figure out how to live as Christians and honor Christ even in our jobs. I've known of folks at HP, for example, 
Many of you have worked at HP, still do, some of you, who got in trouble because they left their Bible on their desk. They put verses up in their cubicle and they were asked to take all that down. It's happened for you, some of you, in other job situations. It's just not okay to bring your faith into your job situation. So how can we live for Christ in such an environment? What does it mean in our jobs to honor him at work? So today we're going to look at four passages, four passages that can help us live, I think, for Jesus at work and help us think through what it means to live out our calling as gospel-centered people, even in a secular work environment. Pray with me. Thank you, Lord, that you are Lord of all of life, not just our private lives, and that you've placed us where you want us in this world to make a difference for you. But, Father, we, we need your wisdom to know what it means to live it out. Jesus, we need to bring life and forgiveness and redemption to our works. We need to know how to do that. And Holy Spirit, we want to live by your power at work, but it's hard. So today, grant us a vision for how we can live out our faith and honor you, even at work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to highlight these four passages and just bring a principle, key principle out of each to help us think about what it means to live out our faith even at work. All of these passages deal with master-slave relationships. And you may be asking, well, why are you applying that to work? That's a different situation. Master-slave relationships. Why are you applying it to everyday employment? Well, let me just say that slavery in the Roman Empire was very different than slavery in this country. Slavery in this country was extremely oppressive and racist. But in the Roman Empire, about one-third of the entire population were slaves. Yes, they were owned by their owners, but it was a much different environment than the slavery in this country. It's true that sometimes slaves in the Roman Empire were treated cruelly, but most often... They were like family. They were paid. Many eventually could buy their own freedom or they would be set free by their masters and become freedmen in the Roman Empire. Many chose to not become freedmen because they were in such a good situation in the family that they were in that they chose not to become free. Many were household managers. They had their own businesses on the side. So it really was the closest thing, this master-slave relationship, the closest thing to what we experience in our culture of the employer-employee relationship. Now some of you think of passages like this, talking about master-slaves, and you think, well, why didn't Paul call for an end of slavery? It is wrong. Owning another human being obviously is always, always wrong. Why didn't he call for an end to that? Let me just say a couple things about that. One is that the principles that Paul and Jesus, Peter, the other gospel writers 
taught in the New Testament led to the eventual end of slavery in England, in this world, and other places throughout the Western world. So those principles of honoring one another and appreciating the value of every human being led to the end of slavery. But Paul lived in a world that was an empire. There was not a chance of changing the social structure of the day. He couldn't vote. He couldn't try to somehow wipe out slavery as an institution. And Paul was less concerned then about changing social structures and more concerned about helping believers live out their faith in whatever situation they found themselves. He was a strong believer in God's sovereignty that God placed Christians where he wanted them. And he was passionate about wanting to help them live out their faith even in difficult circumstances. Having said that, should we try to change oppressive social structures where we can? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And we have more opportunity to do that in this country than in most countries of the world. So let's go on. Let me read the first verse of chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. So that's the book we're working through. It says this, All who are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. He describes what these slaves experienced as a yoke. I think that's a fitting analogy for employment often. You, you're yoked to this job. You're yoked to this corporation. You're yoked to the people you have to work with, including your bosses. You're hitched. And you have to follow the rules, even if they're somewhat unfair, or you'll be fired. Many of us feel trapped in the jobs we're in. We're yoked to a tough job or a difficult boss or co-workers that are hard to work with. So how can we respond in such a tough situation? Interesting what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, teach them to honor their bosses, to consider, he says, their bosses, their masters, worthy of all honor. Notice it's a choice. He says, consider, teach them to consider, to think of their bosses as worthy of all honor. Choose to view them in a certain way. Now let me say, if you've worked at any kind of job, you know what it's like around the water cooler, around the coffee pot, in the break room. Bosses are easy marks for criticism for anger, for frustration, whether you're immediate boss or all the way up the chain of command to the CEO. And, you know, sharing around the water cooler and doing a little boss bashing builds a sense of camaraderie. We're all in this together. And yeah, those guys, they're, you know, they don't understand us. Blah, blah. It's easy to buy into that. And most all of us have done that. It helps us play the victim role at work. We're victims of the gal or the guy who is above us, the one with the power. This is normal, right? It's part of the work culture. It's part of the work environment. Well, notice what Paul says that does to the gospel. 
regard your own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine, the truth of the gospel, will not be blasphemed, slandered. You see, when we choose to enter into that and think about our bosses in those critical kind of ways, along with everybody else, it actually slanders the name of God. It slanders the name of Christ. You as a Christian there are showing that Jesus doesn't make a difference in anybody's life. You're just like everybody else. You see, we're called to live differently than the world around us. And when we get into this boss-bashing game, we show people that Christ isn't real. But on the other hand, when we consider our bosses as worthy of all honor, and maybe they're not great bosses, maybe they're not good at their job, but we can consider them as worthy of honor because they're made in the image of God. And God somehow in his sovereignty chose to place this person over you. So you can consider them as worthy of honor as someone created in the image of God, even if they're not a great boss. And when we do that, it says what happens is the name of Christ is honored. (laughs) And the doctrine, the truth of the gospel is shown to be real. Christ does make a difference in people's lives. Others may not like it. Your co-workers may not like it when you don't join in. But when you choose to have a different attitude about your boss, it serves the kingdom of God. And then in verse 2, he says this, Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they're brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles He says, oh, by the way, if you have a believer for a boss, don't expect special treatment. Hey, we're brothers, you know, hey, we're both sisters in Christ, you know, so you should treat me special. You treat me different or we disrespect them. Oh, yeah, I see them at church all the time or whatever. He says, don't do that. In fact, treat them with more respect because of their position and because they're a believer in Christ, because as you honor them, you end up honoring Christ in them. So the first principle we see then, honor your boss. Don't play the game of boss bashing. Secondly, from the passage that David just read, Ephesians 6, a principle that I think I want to highlight from that passage is serve God first in your job. Notice in that passage in Ephesians 6, starting in verse 5, over and over again, he says things like, um, be obedient to your masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasing, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord. Four different ways, he says, What you're doing in that secular job is you're serving God first. Not men, but God. So have an attitude of serving God first. Never forget, even in a secular job, that it's ultimately God you're serving. It's Jesus. He is the ultimate boss. He's the higher authority above anybody in the chain of command all the way up to the CEO. 
He's higher than all of that. That's who ultimately you are serving. And if you have an attitude of serving Christ first, then it will show. What does this mean practically? Well, it means realizing that Jesus is in this. He's here at work. And he's speaking to me even through my boss and through this work situation. It's seeing that how I work and my attitude at work represents Jesus to my co-workers. And therefore, what I do is for him, not for them. You may think, well, nobody knows I'm a believer anyway. I just keep quiet. <laughs> Maybe. I hope not. It's interesting how people have a way of finding out. I remember being in college, being in a class, and it was a drama class. And as I'm in this class, I was supposed to act out the scene, and I'm trying to act it out, not doing a very good job. And it was the scene of somebody who was drunk. So I'm trying to act it out, and finally the teacher says, that's not how you do it. Haven't you ever been drunk before? And I said, well, yeah. And it was interesting, the rumblings through the class. I, I, I thought he was a believer. I thought he was a Christian. What was interesting about that and kind of shocking to me was I hadn't told anybody I was a Christian. I hadn't let them know. I was just being one of the class members, but somehow they found out. You see, you can't, can't hide it. And, of course, they didn't understand that Jesus can save you. <laughs> Jesus can change your life. And so they had a misconception about what Christians are like. We're redeemed. Jesus had saved me and changed me. But the point is, they knew I was a believer. And I didn't think they did. You see, we represent Christ wherever we are. And so serving God first means understanding that, making sure that what I do is for Him. And so when I'm creative at work, when I'm fruitful, when I produce, when I do what the job calls me to do, when I'm obedient to the task, when I'm kind and caring in that situation, I am reflecting the character of God. I'm serving Christ first. The danger in this passage that he says is, don't be a man pleaser. It's so easy to get caught up in yeah, I work hard when the boss is looking over my shoulder, when someone knows, but, you know, I kind of cruise the rest of the time. He says, don't do that. That's serving man. That's being a man pleaser. Be someone who works hard all the time because you're serving Christ first every day, all the time. Now, to serve Christ first does mean at times that you may need to go against what the boss tells you, right? If he asks you to do something immoral, something clearly wrong, that serving Christ first means I serve Jesus here. But I would encourage you to think that through carefully. Choose your battles carefully. In other words, for example, if you're told not to leave your Bible on your desk, keep it in your book bag, your backpack. Is it really worth losing your job over? Does keeping your Bible in your book bag keep you from living out your faith in Christ? 
I don't think so, personally. So I think you choose your battles carefully and make sure it's a moral issue before you say, no, I will not do that, or something that truly is something God is calling you to other than what the boss is telling you. Some of you have heard the story of my friend John Hanneman, who worked at Aerospace in Silicon Valley. And there, as he worked at his job, he was very good at it. And looking at his faith there, he was doing his best, and the boss came and said, hey, you're doing a great job. I want to promote you to this managerial position a little higher up. He said, you know, let me pray about it. I'll think about it. He said, you know what? No. I need to be able to spend time with my family, and I just know that job would take too much time away from my family. I'm not going to take that job. Well, of course, that didn't put him in great favor with the company, and yet he was committed to that. Four times they came to him to offer him promotions. Four times he said, no, I'm going to be content with my pay. I'm going to be content with my position because I don't want to take away from my family. You know, that's a difficult place to be. But what was very interesting is that later when two groups in another division, another part of Ford Aerospace were having problems, they couldn't work through the issues. The management said, you know, we know somebody of integrity that can help them. And they brought John over to work through the issue with them. We represent Christ at work. And so we're called to serve God first at our job and let the chips fall where they may. The next passage I want to look at is Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 through 25. And as you hear these passages, you hear a lot of repeats because Paul's teaching similar concepts in each of them. But it's important to highlight one, I think, from each. And in this passage, I want to highlight working from the heart. Working from the heart. This is Colossians 3, verse 22 and following. Let me read it to you. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Notice the emphasis on heart. Work from the heart with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work Heartily is my translation. Literally, it's from the soul, from the heart. As for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Notice he repeats it in several ways. Do your work with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Do it from the soul, from the heart. That is, make sure your heart is in the right place. That's what's most important. Make sure your heart's in the right place as you go to work. Make sure it's an internal reality, not just external obedience. We've all heard the story of the little boy who's the mom's getting ready to go, getting ready to drive. He's standing on the seat, in the back seat, and she says, you need to sit down and buckle up. Well, he fights her and argues and finally sits down and buckles up. But he says, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. 
Paul says that's exactly what violates the gospel. Paul been there, right? Been told to to do something you don't want to do at work and you don't like it and your attitude's bad? He's saying you need to deal with your heart. Make sure you're working from the heart as you serve Jesus. God wants us to be people of integrity. So if you find you have a rebellious or a critical attitude toward your work or your boss, then deal with it. Why is it so important? Because, again, you may be the only Jesus they ever get to meet. You may be the only Christian to them, and what kind of example are you? In fact, he goes on to say in that passage that it harms the gospel witness when you have a bad attitude and don't work from the heart. And there's consequences. Verse 24 and 25, he says, a lot of times you end up experiencing consequences because you're sinning, even as a believer. I know of stories of believers who have lost their jobs because they've had a bad attitude. They didn't like what the boss was telling them. And then they go say, yeah, I lost my job. It was persecution for my Christian faith. Frankly, that's just wrong. It wasn't persecution for your Christian faith. You were experiencing the consequences of your bad attitude. (laughs) You were fired because you should have been. So we just need to watch our attitude, make sure our work is done from the heart as you serve your boss at work. Some of you have heard the story of my first job Out of seminary, I was looking for a pastoral position and I couldn't find one. So for a number of months, I worked at a furniture store rebuilding antique furniture in Altos, California. Showed up at the job and the boss said, "Um, do you know how to run the woodworking machines? He was trying to figure out where to place me, you know, and I said, well, yeah, I took wood shop all through junior high and high school. Love working with wood. I know how to run a table saw and a band saw and a planer, etc., etc. He said, well, I have time to check you out. Most guys lie to me. Here's a sander, which was the low end of the totem pole. So I started sanding. But I was frustrated. I thought, wait a minute. I'm a seminary graduate. (laughs) How dare you not trust me? I really was angry about it. I was frustrated. I was sanding, but not very happily about it. (laughs) This went on for a number of months. And God began to speak to my heart. and say, well, the problem here is your attitude. So what if your boss doesn't trust you? So what if he's unreasonable? So what if he's asking you to do menial tasks? Are you trust me or not? Are you going to deal with your heart? So as God began to change my heart over time and I began to submit to him, which wasn't easy, I didn't like it, but as I began to submit to him, change my attitude towards my boss and towards the work, there's no guarantees this will happen, but for me, God was giving me a lesson because the boss began to trust me. He began to move me up. He began to let me do more of the actual woodworking. 
And then eventually when he went back east for a couple weeks to pick up a trailer of new furniture, he left me in charge of the entire shop. And the whole reason was God changed my attitude. You've got to learn to work from the heart. Kind of the end of the story, which was fun for me, is just before I left that job after a number of months, one of the, my co-workers got married and asked me to do the wedding, and the boss came, and I had the opportunity to give him a biblical picture of the gospel and of what marriage is about as he sat in that wedding, and I got to share my faith with him there. Work from the heart. Deal with your attitude. God will honor that. Final passage I want to look at is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. 1 Peter addresses the same issue, servants, masters, and he says this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. The word that's perverse, awful, twisted. Treat them with respect, even if they're twisted bosses. For this finds grace. My translation says favor. Yours probably does too. Literally, it's grace. For this finds grace. If for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, this finds grace with God. Again, my translation says favor, but twice in this passage, he says, when you are willing to suffer, when you're prepared to suffer, when you expect suffering, and you endure it, continuing to trust God, you will find grace from God. You see, you most likely will eventually face injustice, difficulty, struggle at work, perverse bosses at some point. And like the movie, there are horrible bosses. <laughs> How will you respond then? Killing them is probably not a good option. But if you endure it, bear it with a good attitude, trusting God in the situation, God promises that you will receive grace at that time to endure it and to be, live out your Christian faith right there. Grace, the little acronym you've heard before, God's resources at Christ's expense. Grace, God's resources at Christ's expense. You see, it's right there, right at that critical point that we desperately need God's resources, right? And he promises that if we'll be willing to have a good attitude and continue to endure even when it's unfair. And difficult. He will favor you and bless you and give you everything you need to represent Christ there. He'll give you the grace to forgive, the grace to love, the grace to serve, the grace to not retaliate. So, our call 
according to Peter, is be prepared to suffer. (laughs) Expect it. And be willing to endure. Now, there will be times, there may be times, to speak out, to challenge injustice, especially for the sake of others. But the question is, where's your heart attitude? Are you angry and looking for a fight or willing to suffer for Jesus' sake, for the sake of showing people how different Jesus is when he enters a life? Now, I don't have time to read it, but I encourage you to read on in 1 Peter chapter 2 because he goes on to say, For you have been called to walk in his steps, just as Jesus endured suffering, didn't retaliate when he was insulted, but he kept entrusting himself to the Father and therefore won our salvation. So as we keep entrusting ourselves to the Father in difficult situations, so God will use us to impact others for his kingdom. You have a shepherd and guardian of your soul, so trust him even at work. Folks, it's hard to be a Christian at work. It is. We live in a really difficult culture right now to live out your faith at work. What does it mean then to live out your faith? To share Christ every day? To put up Bible verses around your desk? Well, maybe. But what Paul and Peter are getting at is what's really important is that your attitude. Are you honoring your boss in your heart and treating him with respect? Are you learning to serve God first, that he is sovereign and he's the one you're really serving in this work situation? Are you learning to work from the heart and deal with those hard attitudes that get in the way so often of us really serving God at work? And are we prepared to suffer, knowing that it will come? You see, if you'll keep these the center of your work, you'll be honoring God and displaying his life, even in your secular job. I appreciate what David Roper wrote recently in an email. He said this, I realize now that most of life is simply repetition, a round of ordinary, dull, uninspiring, lackluster things that must be done again and again every day. Repetition is reality. It's our daily bread, Kierkegaard said. It's a matter of taking up each duty, no matter how mundane, humble, trivial, trivial, or onerous, and asking God to bless it and put it to his intended purposes. In that way, we take the drudgeries of life and turn them into holy work, freighted with unseen, eternal consequence. There's a book I read a while ago called Secular Work is Full-Time Service. It's out of print. It's hard to find. Excellent little book. But I like the title. Secular work is full-time service. God has put you where you are because where you are is a place to serve God, to make a difference for the gospel that is just as important as what I do as a pastor. I get to do this full-time, but what you do is serving Christ full-time. Secular work is full-time service. I agree. And even in a hostile, non-Christian work environment, how you do your work really matters for the gospel. God has put you there to represent him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign and you have put us where we are, each person in this room. 
where you want us to make a difference for the kingdom of God. May you help us live out this vision of representing you and especially deal with those attitudes that make us like everyone else. May you use us to bring glory to your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.